Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. (laughs) That was pretty good, wasn't it? Happy Mother's Day, moms. So good to be worshiping with you today. Preacher was driving down the road having a hard time keeping it between the lines. Police officer sees it, lights him up, walks up to the car, notices it's his pastor, and smells something. Smells a little bit like alcohol. Everything okay, pastor? Uh, Yes, sir, your honor, he says as he slurs his words. Pastor, have you been drinking? Oh, no, sir. I haven't been. Only thing I've been drinking is this water right here. And he points to his Yeti cup. He says, you mind if I look at that? He says, not at all. Take, Take a look. And he hands him the cup of water. And the officer opens it up, smells it, and takes a drink and says, Pastor, this isn't water. This is wine. And there's a pause. And the pastor says, Hallelujah, he did it again. <laughs> you know, there was a day when Jesus did, in fact, turn water to wine. And surprisingly, it might have been one of the most important miracles that he ever did. Let's go there, John chapter 2, and see about it. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> John chapter 2, verse 1. Now, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. So, Mama was at the wedding. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited. I've always loved that fact that they invited Jesus to weddings. Why did they invite Jesus to weddings? Because they wanted to be around him, because he was a likable person. You know, sometimes I think the the image that the followers of Jesus give are not exactly accurate to who Jesus really was. We have this idea that there is this stern, super serious, never let your face crack kind of idea. Um, And Jesus was likable enough and winsome enough. They wanted to be around him. They invited him to a wedding, right? When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. Now, this is a big deal in Jewish culture. It would have been a huge embarrassment for the family and for that little bride. The Jews had a, had a saying in those days, where there is no wine, there is no party. And so it would have been a, a massive social faux pas for them to have run out of wine. And I'm not exactly sure why Mary got involved in this. Maybe it was family because Cana's not far from Nazareth. Um, I don't know. Maybe she was the only one that knew that Jesus was the only one that could fix the problem. But for whatever reason, she, she got involved. And so she went to Jesus and, and told him about it. And Jesus uh, replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. Now, woman sounds like he's mad at her, but he's not. He says this with a smile. It's really a term of endearment. Mama, why are you bringing this up now? It's not my time. And I get the impression that Jesus was having such a good time at the wedding feast and the party that he was reluctant to want to begin this ministry because he knew, and this was all part of the plan. I mean, he knew before he got to the wedding what he was going to do. Uh, But I I really sense that the idea is that the minute this miracle occurs, that this spaceship's going to launch, and he knows it's not going to end until he gets to the cross. And so it's like, I guess it's time to do what I have to do. His mother told his servants, and I love this, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Simple faith. Now, there were six stone water jars uh, there for the Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 
20 to 30 gallons, Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the very top. Notice they filled them to the very brim. There's nothing else to put in there. You couldn't put some sort of secret wine powder or some secret wine concentrate. The water's already to the brim, right? Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward. And they did. And when the head steward tasted the water that had been turned to wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. You've kept the good wine until now. Jesus had turned H2O into Cabernet Sauvignon. And the new wine was better than the old wine. That's important. We'll see that in a minute. Verse 11, Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory. And so immediately the point becomes that the ministry is about to start. It is launched with this miracle and he is revealing his glory. And look at this, his disciples believed in him. Like I said, this might be the most important miracle that Jesus ever did. And I know that seems strange because it seems such a trivial thing. You're at a wedding, you're out of refreshments, he creates more refreshments for people at the wedding. But there's so much more here that it's really, and I'll be honest with you, difficult to unpack all of this in the time that we really have together this morning. So let's wade through it kind of quickly and uh, give you a sense of all the things underlying that are going on here. I mean, obviously, first of all, this demonstrates the power of Jesus because the ingredients for wine were not in those pots. In essence, he made wine out of nothing. And isn't that what he always does? He creates out of nothing. I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and theologians will tell you the old word for that in Latin is ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. And John opens his gospel with, in the beginning was the word, connecting it to Genesis, and the word was God, the word was with God, and all things came into being by him, apart from him nothing came into being. And the whole idea there is the same. In the beginning God created out of nothing. And this doesn't only apply to nature, it applies to us as well. He can make something from the nothing in us. I think that's the point. When, when he first met Simon, he said, your name is Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter because Simon means small stones, gravel, almost like sand, crushed rock. He said, but I'm going to turn you into Peter, which is the rock upon which the church would ultimately be founded. And, and what he's saying is, and there's nothing in Peter at that time. Peter was just a, a hard scrabble fisherman from the North Shore of Galilee. There was nothing in him in that moment that would have been capable of becoming one of the founding members of the church that you and I experience today. And yet in Peter, Jesus proved that he makes something from nothing. And he turned water into wine. He'll turn your mess into a miracle. That's the point. He has the power to turn your mess into a miracle. And then second, it demonstrates the compassion of Jesus. He used that great power to rescue a wedding disaster. He used that enormous power to alter the physics of the universe just to keep a young girl and a young boy from being embarrassed. And, and I suddenly realized if he cares about weddings, you know he cares about you. And there's a compassion there. 
But there's a third thing here, and I think it's this, that he demonstrates the supremacy of grace. And I think this is all about the supremacy of grace. Notice that there were six jars. Six is the number of man. It's the number of imperfection, right? And uh, he takes those six jars, and wine becomes the symbol of the new covenant. Remember at the Lord's Supper, uh, at the end, Jesus lifts up the cup, and he says, this Wine is the new covenant in my blood. I mean, he could have picked up, if it was about the blood, he would have picked up a piece of the lamb because the lamb represented the blood, right? It wasn't about the blood. It was about the new covenant. It was about the wine. It was about the expansive nature of wine. Remember when he's talking to the Jews and he says, you can't put new wine into old wineskins because the old wineskins become dried and brittle and new wine is expansive, New wine in the fermentation process is going to begin to expand and it's going to blow out the sides of an old, dry, brittle wineskin. You've got to put new wine into new wineskins. In other words, this new covenant is not going to fit in the stale constraints of classic legalism that had become so part of the Jewish system. And I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to do this for one little regional group of people called Jews. This is going to be so expansive that it's going to go global. It's going to go around the world. And so the dynamism of the new covenant is visible in the wine. And look, too, the, the new wine here was better than the old wine. Now, let me just say this. I know nothing about wine, okay? I know nothing about wine. But they tell me that the best wine is old wine. I don't know why that is. They say that wine, I guess wine like us old guys gets better with age, right? Is that how it works? And so normally the best wine is the old wine. Nobody wants new wine after they've tasted the old wine. There's a verse, Luke 5, 39, and no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And yet this new wine was better than the old wine. And what he's saying by that is grace is superior to the law. Um, The whole legal system and the problem with the law and the imperfection of the law, the law itself was perfect, but it was imperfect in this regard. We're imperfect. And so all the law could do was tell me what was wrong, but it couldn't do anything to help me do what was right. And so in that imperfection of the law, all it could do is produce the guilt that I could never eradicate because I could never live up to the standard of the law. That, in that way, grace says it's not about your performance. It's not about how good you are. It's about the forgiveness that's poured out by virtue of the grace of God poured out on the cross. And so it becomes superior to the law in every way. And grace here is plentiful. I looked at this and I thought, man, look how much wine he made. I mean, they said there were six water pots with 20 to 30 gallons each. So do the math. That's 120 to 180 gallons. I figured the high side, 180. How many ounces of wine is that? I did the math on this. It's over 23,000 ounces of wine. You're like, well, so what? Well, I looked this up too because I don't know anything about wine. Wine tastes like grape-flavored beer to me. I just can't stand the thought of wine. But some of you guys, I guess it's different. But um, the average bottle of wine is 25 ounces. Did you all know that? And that is enough for five glasses of wine. And so if you take that 25 and you divide it into the 23,000 ounces he made, he made like nearly a thousand bottles of wine, which multiply that out by five glasses of wine in each bottle, and you get 5,000 glasses of wine. Now add to this that the Jews were hypersensitive to public intoxication. 
Uh, it was such a humiliation to be publicly intoxicated that they would try to avoid it at any rate. And most of the time, they would cut the wine two to one with water so that they would water down the wine so that they would not run the risk. So you now multiply it by three times over and you're dealing with, you know, 13,000 plus glasses of wine. How many people are at this wedding? Historians will tell you there were only three to 500 people who lived in the whole town of Cana. Say they were all there. What's 500 into 13,000? There's plenty of wine. In other words, Jesus made more wine than they would ever need. And he's saying through this, there's more grace than you can ever use. And that's a consistent theme. I mean, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, uh, he talks about the abundance of grace, and, and the word that he uses there is superabundance. Over in John 1.16, he's already said that we have grace upon grace, grace piled up on top of grace. And in Romans 5.20, he says, where sin increases, grace abounds even more. Like, you can't out-sin grace, right? And, and that's important for us because sometimes we think that what we've done is so bad that it has expended the full content of grace. Like, God can't forgive me. You don't know what I've done. You ever heard anybody say that? Or maybe it's because we just keep doing it. We think that we have somewhat, you know, expended our allocation of grace because we did it again and we did it again. And maybe we've run to the, to the end of it. And he, he's just not going to forgive us one more time. And yet... What we hear in this and what we see in this is that He has provided all the grace we'll ever need to cover all the sin we'll ever do. The sin we did before we came to Jesus, the sin we do in Jesus, and the sin we're going to do because we are human and flawed and frail. You get it? Are you tracking? with? There's no way that you can run out of grace. He made more wine than they would ever need. And then Mary demonstrated real faith. She said, whatever He says to you, do it. And there's a powerful principle here. She gave it to Jesus, and then what did she do? She walked away and enjoyed the wedding. She didn't stick around and try to tell him how to do it. She gave it to Jesus, then she walked away, and she didn't stay and try to tell him how to do it. Men, I'm going to say that one more time for your benefit. Wives, she gave it to her husband, I mean, Jesus, and she walked away and let him do it and didn't stick around and try to tell him how to do it. Are you hearing me? Mary had no idea how Jesus was going to fix the problem of wine. She just knew that he was going to fix the problem with wine. And she rested in that. And there's a powerful principle of faith here, and that is trust is implicitly tied to faith. Mary trusted Jesus. Whatever he says to you, do it. I don't know what he's going to tell you to do, but whatever he says to do, do it. And isn't that what it means to walk by faith? Now, let me say this. Be sure Jesus said it. Man, i got to tell you, we live in a day, and, and I'm hearing it all the time. You probably are too. God told me this. God told me this. God told me this. And sometimes what they tell me God told them is the exact opposite of what His Word has told me. And I'm like, how could God have told you to do this if the Word says don't do this? 
Or how could you have said that God has told me not to do this when the word says to do? You, are you tracking with me? You see, the problem is we can use this expression, God told me to do this, to justify just about anything. When, when my boys were little, we wouldn't let them eat hard candy because, you know, they'd choke, right? You can't give a kid hard candy, he'll choke. One day, one of my sons, true story, walked up to him, he was two or three years old, and he said, uh, uh, you could tell he was nervous, uh, um, Dad, uh, he had a piece of hard candy in his hand, he said, uh, Dad, uh, Jesus told me I could have this. <laughs> I looked at him, I'm like, you little liar, you know, <laughs> preacher's kids, they kind of grow up behind the veil, you know, and so they're going to they're going to try to pull it off early on. I said, give me that. that. You'll choke. Now, get out of here and quit lying. And uh, he tramped on down the hall. But, you know, I've, I've heard that ever since. God told me this. God told me that. You need to be sure he said it. And then some people will say, well, I just know he told me because my heart tells me. You've you got to be careful with the heart, man. The hearts are deceptive. Obadiah 3 says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. We don't follow our hearts. You know, one of the worst advice you can give somebody is follow their heart. I hear it all the time. Hollywood's always follow your heart, follow your heart. Now, you follow the Lord. Let him change your heart. Um, pray about it. You want to know if Jesus said it? Pray about it. Seek wise counsel. Talk to people, and not just people who are passionate, but people who are passionate and have been there for a while, who have wisdom. Seek that counsel of wisdom. Iron sharpens iron. Uh, go to the Word. Uh, examine the Word. What does the Word say? What are the governing principles of our life that we derive from the Word? This is why a biblical mind is so important that we learn. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to be in the Word. And then check your motives constantly. But once you discover, this is what God wants me to do. When you're sure He said it, then you do it. So in this little story, we see these powerful principles, the power of God, the compassion of God, the grace of God, and the importance of faith. I told you, this was a very important story. And there's just so much going on here that affects and applies, and I'm, I'm sure as you're hearing this, you're, you're hearing and in your mind you're, you're living it, that there are areas of your life right now that can be applied to this. But I thought, you know, it's Mother's Day, so let's apply this to, to moms and being a mom. How does this affect being a mom? right? Here's something you seldom hear, parents. On Mother's Day, we always talk about the glory of our moms, the greatness of our moms, and, and there's no question that's all true. On Father's Day, we sort of shower down on those guys. Dad, you need to do better. But one of the things we seldom talk about on Mother's Day is how hard it is to be a parent. Dobson wrote a book years ago uh, entitled Parenting Isn't for Cowards. And man, is that ever true? I mean, there's just nothing. And I was telling my son this, you know, um, they were going to have a baby and they have this big dog named Murphy, a big golden retriever. And I looked at that dog and I said, you know, what's going to happen to that dog when that baby comes? Because that dog's sleeping in the bed with them. It's like Murphy and you know, they take him with them. Every, I said, you know, what's going to happen to that dog when that baby comes? They're like, what? And I said, that dog's going to become a dog again. They're like, no, no. And I'm going to tell you what else. You're not going to sleep for a long time. And it's going to affect you. And they're like, oh, yeah. And my son came to me and he said, my dog's a dog. And we had no idea what was coming at us. <laughs> Leanne Morgan does this bit. Take a look at it. It's, it's funny. It's along those lines. When my boy and his wife heard <clears throat> about this precious baby, they would say, their baby. 
And we would say, our baby. And then they started using words like boundaries. <laughs> they started saying things like, oh yeah, so-and-so used to play some boundaries with her mother and father-in-law. And I just smiled and kept my mouth shut and went. And I thought to myself, they don't know what's about to hit them. <laughs> they're gonna have this precious baby and they're gonna be up all night and that's gonna go into weeks and months and then my little daughter-in-law is gonna start hallucinating. <laughs> and then she's gonna wake up in the night and she'll be breastfeeding the lamp. And we'll see who's got boundaries. <laughs> Isn't that true? <clears throat> and I'd like to say that it gets better, but it doesn't. You never stop parenting. You never stop worrying about the kids. You never stop worrying, do they fit in? Are they going to make it? Are they being bullied? Uh, are they making poor decisions? I mean, parenting is hard, and it can be crushing. And you live with this nagging sense of guilt and worry. And the idea is, what do you do? Well, let's go back to the principles, okay? First of all, remember Jesus is powerful. Moms, remember Jesus is powerful. The hardest part of parenting for me is how powerless you often feel because you can't control them. You, and we have to always remember that Jesus is powerful even when I'm not. And he has, he has control even when I'm out of control. I think the second thing, moms, you've got to remember is Jesus is compassionate, right? We go back to this thing. He broke the laws of physics in order to keep from a little girl being embarrassed on her wedding day. He's not going to give up on your child. And then remember that God is gracious, not only for your child, but for you. Maybe the hardest part of parenting is forgiving yourself right? Parents carry so much guilt. I know I do. I mean, if my kid struggles, then I assume that I must have done something wrong. And the world reinforces this. You know, Dobson says it used to be that you see a bad kid walking down the side of the road and you go, there goes a bad kid. Now, if you see a bad kid walking down the side of the road, you go, there goes a bad parent. And the idea is that we can somehow we're either going to make them bad or we're going to make them good. And that's just a lie from the pit because they all have their own struggles and they all have their own choices. But we can't get over that. If my kids struggle, then I must have done something wrong. Was I too hard? Was I too soft? Was I present enough? Was I too present? I mean, here's the truth. As a dad, I did a lot of things wrong. Every parent does a lot of things wrong. There's only been one perfect parent in the garden, and look how that turned out. There is no guarantee, right? They have choices. They're going to make decisions, and they don't always make the right ones, and you didn't do that. So stop carrying all that guilt that belongs to you. When we make mistakes, we take that to the feet of Jesus. And that same grace that superabounds, it's more than you'll ever need, is going to cover whatever you've done. And he forgives you. And he'll forgive your child. And you don't have to constantly, you know, the thing about it is, if we, if we, if we don't allow ourselves to be forgiven, then we're going to constantly walk in guilt and shame. Somebody said, guilt is picking up a stone that Jesus didn't throw and throwing it at yourself. And that grace is also available for your child. 
And so we live by faith and we just keep trusting. Remember what Mary said? Whatever he said to you, do it. Stop worrying about what you can't control. Express your love, pray for them, enjoy them, protect them when you can. Give them wise counsel, be a great model, but you can't do it all. Ruth Graham says this in her beautiful book for prodigals and those who love them. Mothers must take care of the possible and trust God for the impossible. I mean, Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, right? And I always want to ask moms, where was the mom in that story? Well, there was no mom in that story. It was a father. And, and I, I want to say this. It's a parable. You don't press a parable, right? A parable has one idea, one point. A parable means to cast alongside. It's an illustration with one idea. And the idea in that story is that the father was God. And so he's got these two boys. One boy's doing the right thing. The other boy wants to do the wrong thing. So he asks for his inheritance. Dad, give me what's owed. He takes it and he wastes it, right? And he's out of money. He's out of friends. He's out of everything. Winds up in a pig pen on a pig farm, which is you can't get any worse than that for a Jewish boy. And he's feeding the pigs... And one day he comes to himself, and that word means come out of a coma. He came awake. He woke up. He said, in my father's house, the servants are doing better than me. I mean, this guy's envious of the pigs. He's as low as it gets. My father's house, the servants do better than me. I'm going back to my father and say, look, I'm not worthy to be your son, but I'll be your servant. And as he's walking up the road, the daddy sees him, and he jumps up. And he runs to him. And that image of of the father being God running to us, when he sees us coming to him, he he runs to us. It's beautiful. But I always ask these moms and dads, and I remind myself, where was the father when the boy was in the pigsty? He was on the porch. Dad never left the porch. Stayed on the porch. See, mamas can't do that. Mama's got to run to the pig pen and try to make the pig pen more comfortable. Let's see if we can put some drapes up and put a rug down and let's try to, this is horrible, but we're going to do the best we can and we're going to try to constantly rescue and make it a little more comfortable. Look, he's in the pig pen because God knows he has to create pain in order to accommodate change. People don't change without pain. And if you go and you try to make the pig pen more livable, then you're just going to make him comfortable enough to stay in the pig pen. And it's the hardest thing in the world to just trust God and just say, you know what? He belongs to you, Father, and you can do what I can't do. And I'm going to leave this alone and I'm going to leave it in your hands. I mean, go back to the story at the wedding. Remember what Mary did? She gave her problem to Jesus and then she went back to the wedding. and She trusted him to take care of it. And so we give it to Jesus and then trust him for the results. He's mighty, he's compassionate, he's gracious, and he loves your child more than you do. Did you know that, Mom? God loves your child more than you do. And he's capable of miracles. And he can do something from nothing. And I've seen it so many times. You know, one of the ways I know is because that's what he did in me. And I've seen it in so many other people. He'll do something in them. I had a high school drama teacher walk up to me one time at a restaurant and say, thank you so much because you give me hope. I said, why do you say that, Miss McBrayer? She said, because if God could take you, he could take anybody. (laughs) 
I said, thank you, I think. <laughs> you know, I was at the Priscilla Shirer event, and uh, she did this thing where she, she prayed over different things. She said, okay, if, if you've been set free, would you stand up right now if God has set you free? And, you know, a few people all over the room stood up, and she said, now, if you need to be set free, raise your hand. And a smattering of people raised their hands. She said, okay, if you were set free, you go pray for that person. And they'd walk over and pray for that person. Then she'd say, if God has healed your marriage, you know, stand up. If you need your marriage to be healed, raise your hand. Again, more hands. And then she said, if you're worried about your child and God has healed your child, stand up. And women stood up all over. And then she said, if you're worried about your child right now, raise your hand. And I'm telling you, almost every hand in the room went up. And I suddenly realized moms are grieving for their children. And they're struggling. And mom, if you're struggling right now, I want to take your hand and walk you back to that wedding feast. God is powerful. He's compassionate. And He gives more grace than you or your child will ever need. And I just thought it would be so appropriate if we could just pray for you right now. I want to do something, okay? And it may not work in this room, but I want everybody that's not a mom to stand up right now. Moms, if you're a mom or grandmom, whatever, you stay seated, but everybody else stand up. This is all the guys and some people, okay, everybody. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look for a mom close to you and put your hand on their shoulder. And some of you may have to team up because there's more moms than men in here. Can we pray together over you moms? Father, our moms are so special. They're tired. They feel inadequate. They often feel powerless and they feel a lot of guilt and they feel like Every bad thing that's happened to their kids is their fault. Will you just please fill them with your grace this morning and your word? Father, would you show them that you're powerful? Would you help them to see that? Would you help them to realize that you're compassionate and that you've created all the grace to cover all the mistakes they've ever made? and all the grace that their child will need to get through life. And you love their child more than they do. And Father, we trust you. And I pray these moms would be able to trust you and to say, as Mary said, whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. And they would release that. Father, just open their hands to you right now and be free. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.